Hello, everybody, and welcome. How you doing tonight? Let's have a big cheer. A very pleasant good evening to my friends in recovery, to treatment professionals, advocates for equality, and distinguished guests representing the legislature from King County. Welcome to the 18th annual King County Legislative Forum. You guys rock every year. This gets bigger and better. Give yourselves a round of applause. My name is Neil Scott. I'm with Recovery Coast to Coast. I'm also, uh, some of you guys may know me as a sports guy at Sports Radio 950 KJR. Uh, I'm the host of Recovery Coast to Coast, which is a nightly two-hour radio talk show. And it's on the air every night from 10 to midnight. We invite you to listen to that. I'm honored and privileged to be back here again. This is my, I believe, seventh time. Uh, I want to, as people are coming in, if you would kind of move into the center so that we can try to get as many people packed in as possible, we would certainly appreciate that. I'd like to welcome our legislators and elected officials who are here to show their support for mental health issues, addiction issues, and reducing homelessness in King County. Thank you so much for being here. This is an historic night, bringing together in this room those who are in recovery from mental illness and addiction, some who are in need of treatment services as we speak, those who provide services, both public sector and our friends in the private sector as well, those who fund services, and legislators who appropriate funding for services. We are all here tonight. We are all here together. We are all in this journey together. I would like to acknowledge some of the special guests who are here tonight. Kirkland City Council Member Dave Asher, and please hold your applause till the end. Seattle City Council Member Sally Bagshaw, Seattle City Council Member Sally Clark, Medina Deputy Mayor David Lee is joining us tonight. Federal Way Council Member Martin Moore. Jane Beyer is here again this year. Mary Ann Lindebald. Andy Smith, Senior Policy Advisor to Governor Jay Inslee. And from the uh, judicial side, we've got Judge Beth Andrus, Judge Johanna Bender, Judge Greg Canova, Judge Cheryl Carey, Judge Mike Finkel, Judge Nathaniel Green, Judge Ann Harper, Judge Laura Inveen, Judge Barbara Mack, <laughs> that's a cheering section all, all their own, uh, Judge Jim Rogers, uh, Roger Rockoff, uh, Wesley St. Clair, Judge Ken Schubert, give it up for the peeps, <laughs> Donna Tucker, Judge Tucker is here tonight, Rod Dembowski is council member is here tonight, council member Joe McDermott is here tonight, Give a hand for all those who are here tonight to fight for you. This year's forum is jointly sponsored by the King County Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Administrative Board, the King County Mental Health Advisory Board, and I'd like to acknowledge the sponsorship of two outstanding organizations in King County, the two chapters of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness in Greater Seattle and in South King County. You make a difference. NAMI rocks! I'd like to begin by asking you to think of someone right now who is in need of mental health or addiction services. Someone you know, perhaps someone you love. They are the real reason that we are here tonight. I ask you to hold that person in your heart right now as we observe 
a moment of respectful silence. I thank you for that. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, there is no such thing as a hopeless alcoholic or drug addict or a hopeless homeless person or a hopeless person with a mental illness. Prevention works, treatment is successful, and recovery is a reality. I want you who are in the legislature to see tonight, to see, to hear, and to understand that our dollars have produced results. Good treatment, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't cost it pays. And in King County, there is good treatment, but there's a need for a lot more of it. And if you don't provide the money now, you'll pay many times over in consequential costs, including incarceration and death. My legislative friends, tonight you will meet many individuals who are living proof that treatment works. You'll hear from a man who has spent 18 years in the state legislature and has been to every one of these forums. Tonight he is here again this time as the mayor of this great city of Seattle. You'll hear from another friend and advocate at the county level, the deputy King County executive, who knows that treatment works and knows that recovery happens. You'll meet a popular television personality who lost a child to an overdose, a woman who is now doing everything in her power to prevent that from happening to others. You will hear from four members of the recovery community who will share what it's like to be in recovery and you will meet, some of you for the first time, our new Mental Health and Substance Abuse Division Director, who will share a little bit about what he overcame, including mental illness and family alcoholism, to be here tonight. He will share with you his vision for our future here in King County. And you'll have a chance to meet the people who you elected to represent you in King County. They will take the stage in just a little while and tell you how they feel about prevention, treatment, and recovery. But the most important person here tonight is you. You who advocate. You who represent. You who vote. You who support continued successful treatment in King County for those who are still sick and suffering. I join with you to keep the flames of hope burning brightly here in King County. We begin the program, and again, before I bring up our first guest, again, if, if everybody can move in, I know it's kind of tight. Uh, this is great to see so many people here, I'm telling you. All right, you know, I could go into a long introduction of our first guest. I could go on and on about his many accomplishments. But you all know him. You all know the accomplishments. You know this man is a friend. He has been, continues to be, and I'm quite certain will always be an advocate for those in need. He is our friend. He's our mayor. The mayor of the great city of Seattle, Mr. Ed Murray. Well, thank you. It is great to be back here tonight. And this is actually the 19th year that I've attended this. Uh, and it's a privilege to be back here. And I can tell you, in the 19 years, the, the previous 18 years, I have never seen a crowd this big. So congratulations. You know, November 4th, 1995, I took the oath of office for the first time, and my then brand new seatmate, Frank Chop, 
said, you've got to go to this forum. And 10, day, 10 days later, I was at this forum. Last year, on November 5th, I was elected mayor. So I was an outgoing legislator. And I didn't really need to come to this forum. But I came 19 years ago, and I came 18 years ago for the same reason that I'm here tonight. What happens to people who struggle with mental illness, what happens to people who struggle with addiction, affects all of us, and all of us in some way have been impacted. Whether it's fam family or friends, or in my case, when it comes to addiction, actual family members, we see the cost that happens to all of us. Tonight I'm here as mayor, and I'm here as mayor to pledge that this city will work with King County as it deals with its funding crisis when it comes to mental health. And I'm here to pledge to work with our legislative delegation. And as somebody who was just a legislator a few months ago, I, I, I want to share something with you. There is no group of elected officials in this state that have a more difficult job than the members of the Washington State Legislature. And those legislators and their representatives who showed up here tonight have the most difficult job because they are advocating for you and they're advocating for new revenue for you. So let's hear it for them. And by the way, I am very happy, while I'm no longer your state senator, I'm very happy that Jamie Peterson is the new state senator from this district. So let's hear it for Jamie in the 43rd district. But there's something that we have to do. I know it's been frustrating since a great recession hit. I know that how decimated budgets have happened to our, our agencies and those, and those of you who depend on the state or the county or the city to be your partner. But when it comes to the legislators, I would urge you, let's, let's not get angry. Let's walk with them. Let's walk beside them. Let's work with them. Because they have a huge uphill battle. But I also know, given the group of folks that are here in the legislature, that they're the absolute folks who will bring home and deliver the additional services that you need. Um, maybe that's not the, the, the um, uh, speech I should be giving. Maybe I should give you the speech about how I need help with the homeless people who are sleeping a block away from here tonight. Or I should be telling you about the folks who are underneath the bridge who need mental health treatment and those legislators better deliver. But friends, we will not do what we need to do to help the people in the streets of the city unless we collaborate. So it's going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. But I ask you to join me in collaborating with our legislative delegation to make sure that we begin to restore the cuts that we've seen over the years at the federal and other levels. So thank you for inviting me tonight. It's good to be back. Again, this is an incredible crowd. And I look forward to working with you through this next legislative session. Thanks. Mayor Ed Murray. Our next guest has been carrying the banner of hope in King County for many, many years. Both he and Executive Dow Constantine know that treatment works. Please welcome one of our great ambassadors and civic leaders, my good friend, your good friend, Fred Jarrett. I just told Ed I always had to follow him. Um, 
I'll be, you know, I've not been here as many times as Ed has, but this is absolutely the largest and most impressive crowd of people that I've seen out to advocate for mental health in my career. And so thank you very much for being here. And I also want to echo Ed's comments about the need for us to work together. I know Dow and I are pledged to work with the legislature and with Ed and the city of Seattle to find ways to be able to deal with problems that I think we're looking at in the next few years. We are looking at some really tough times and we're going to have to be very creative and we're going to have to be very thoughtful and we're going to have to work very hard to be able to keep this the place that we want to live. So thank you very much for being here and thank you for the work that you're going to do to make this a better place to live. And I want to say on behalf of Dow, who couldn't be here tonight, that uh, this is a really great opportunity to talk a little bit about uh, the important discussion that we need to have about prevention and treatment for mental illness and substance abuse. And for showing that you care about people in our region who need treatment and who are working to achieve recovery. Access to affordable health care is absolutely essential to the overall safety, health, and success of our region. Thanks to health care reform, access has been improved. More than 165,000 people in King County have enrolled in qualified health plans or in Medicaid since our legislative forum this time last year. Those individuals and families that one year had little or no health care. We thank our county legislative delegation for your support of Medicaid expansion and health care reform. It makes a huge difference to the people that we serve. King County government is proud to coordinate the mental health and substance abuse service system for our region. It is a responsibility that we take very seriously. When state funding was reduced during the terrible recession, we looked for ways to be able to help our most vulnerable residents and to keep treatment doors open as best we could. The voter-approved Veterans and Human Services levy is one avenue. It, funds, it helps to fund integrated health services and behavioral health services, supported housing, homeless outreach, depression screening for seniors, employment training, and more, with the goals of improving health and building self-sufficiency. Our Mental Health and Drug Dependency Plan, or MID, funded by one-tenth of a cent sales tax made possible by the state legislature, is another example of efforts. It is helping to pay for treatment services for a limited number of low-income residents not eligible for Medicaid. School-based services in middle school and high schools to connect youth with counseling and caring adults. And it is supporting our very successful family treatment, mental health, and drug courts. Other programs like our Crisis Solutions Center are showing great results in linking people to housing and treatments rather than emergency rooms or jail cells. Through practices, through best practices and innovation, we continually seek the most effective services that lead to recovery. Looking ahead, we want to increase our efforts to prevent severe mental illness and addictions. King County is working now to develop a plan to send to the voters in 2015 to increase our prevention and early intervention efforts for children from birth through young adulthood and to improve and strengthen the communities in which our children live and grow. Best Starts for Kids will create opportunities to intervene at critical points in a child's life to reduce health risks 
and make healthy growth and development possible for all of our children, regardless of geography, of race, or of income. With earlier assessment and recognition of behavioral health problems, we can help children and youth before mental illness or addiction steal their chance for healthy lives and futures. We can reduce chronic homeless, homelessness, chronic mental illness, addiction, suicides in the next generation if we can address health issues as they emerge in life rather than after they have become long-standing and life-threatening. To be successful, our enhanced prevention and early intervention must lead to treatment services in the community, and for that we need the support of our legislators in Olympia and in Washington, D.C. As you move into the next session, please keep this very important thought in mind. Treatment works. Our outcomes and evaluations consistently show that investing in treatment reduces the emergency room and crisis response services, reduces criminal justice costs, and reduces inpatient hospitalization. More important, investing in treatment saves lives. You will hear more about the county's accomplishment and priorities because it is important information, and it is all based on real data. But the most powerful messages you'll hear tonight will come from our community. You'll hear from families who sought help for their loved ones. You'll hear from people who surmounted incredible challenges to achieve recovery thanks to their hard work and your funding of community treatment. They will tell you how and why treatment is so very important. Cuts to behavioral health have made community and crisis treatment harder to access. That funding must be restored. We thank Speaker Frank Chop for his work in convening a mental health task force. And we thank the legislators who have participated in that task force for your discussions on rebuilding the foundation of the public behavioral health system for now and for the future. We thank Governor Inslee for identifying one-time emergency funding to help people needing inpatient psychiatric care now and for joining Executive Constantine in convening a task force dedicated to solving the inpatient psychiatric bed crisis in our state once and for all. Let us continue to work together, not just to preserve critical services, but to build on them. Treatment works. It's helped thousands and thousands of King County residents reclaim their lives, their health, and their futures. Thank you for coming tonight. Thank you for caring, and thank you for the work that we will do together in the coming months. Thank you. Deputy King County Executive Fred Jarrett. Our next guest, ladies and gentlemen, is someone that uh, maybe some of you have not had a chance to meet. He's only been on the job less than a year. Uh, I've had the opportunity to have known him for a while. I had him on the radio show about a week ago talking about this forum, urging people to come to the forum. He's a guy that, that has a lot of compassion, a lot of passion, and is going to be a leader in King County for many, many years to come. Jim Volendroff is the Division Director, King County Mental Health Chemical Abuse and Dependency Services. Department of Community and Human Services, and that's a mouthful. Ladies and gentlemen, say hello to Jim Volendroff. 
wow, this is an amazing crowd. I am thrilled to be here tonight. You know, I'm just going to start. I have a written speech, and I'm going to stick to it, or I could be up here all night. Prevention works, treatment is effective, and people recover. That's our theme tonight, as you have already heard from Mayor Murray and King County Deputy Executive Fred Jarrett. I'm here to talk about how this is true here in King County and how we are working with our federal and state partners to help prevent and treat behavioral health disorders. Tonight, I will also identify the King County Mental Health and Substance Abuse Legislative Form priorities for 2015 and share why we believe that these priorities will restore and make healthier communities. Through incredible personal stories tonight that will be shared of tragic loss and resiliency and recovery, we will demonstrate why we need to invest in behavioral health services. Failure to, to invest in behavioral health services results in lost lives and unrealized potential. While investment brings home the fact that treatment and prevention are, are important and people do in fact recovery, and that's why we have asked you here tonight. I only get to say this once, and I'm really running out of time in general to be able to say this. My name is Jim Vollendroff, and I am the new director of the King County Mental Health and Substance Abuse Division. I want, I want to offer my own thanks and to the uh, special uh, electeds and special guests who are here tonight, and each and every one of you for taking the time to be here. I also want to acknowledge our countywide network of behavioral health providers who without their hard work, we could not do the work that we do every single day. I also want to thank the staff of the King County Mental Health and Substance Abuse Division who work tirelessly every single day to improve the lives of people in our community. Between Medicaid expansion under the Affordable Care Act, the Mental Health Equity, and, and, uh, Equity, and, uh, Equity Act, Senate Bill 6312 requiring the integration of behavioral health services, and the recent Washington State Supreme Court decision on boarding, the behavioral health system in our state is rapidly changing. These positive effects will have long-lasting uh, impact on access to care and how we deliver services. We have an obligation to assure that these changes are implemented with measured care and consideration for the people that we serve, focusing not on what is best for the system that purchases those services or the services that manage those, but with the patients that we serve at the heart of every decision that we make. Constantly asking ourselves what is in the best interest of the families and the individuals that we serve and what are, what's going to produce the best outcomes, ultimately resulting in the cost savings that we seek through these investments. I am personally invested in mental health and substance abuse recovery. I have my own story to tell about growing up with an alcoholic father who I am happy to tell you at age 83 he just celebrated 18 years in recovery. As an adolescent, I had my own struggles with depression and anxiety and, and have experienced involuntary treatment, which saved my life. Unfort <laughs> Unfortunately, the reality is that not all stories about mental health and substance abuse end in miraculous recovery. Along the way, there are many tragic deaths and needless incarcerations. 
We must increase efforts to offer immediate access to evidence-based behavioral health services and change policy that allows for treatment in lieu of incarceration. Although we have made progress through our therapeutic courts and other diversion options, at great emotional and monetary expense, we continue to incarcerate too many people in this country. There is a growing body of scientific evidence confirming the efficacy and cost savings of science-based behavioral health interventions. The return on investment is immediate with substantial cost savings in health care, increased productivity, criminal justice, economic development, uh, economic growth, and public health. Sadly, the vast majority of the $500 billion $500 billion we spend annually on substance abuse goes to deal with the consequences of alcohol, tobacco, and other drug use and not treatment and prevention. It is time to reprioritize how we invest our resources. As Deputy uh, Executive Jarrett already mentioned, what happens in early childhood and adolescence shapes our health and well-being throughout our life. That's why Executive Dow Constantine has pledged to work with the King County Council and community leaders to develop a Best Starts, levy, Best Starts for Kids levy proposal for 2015. Executive Constantine recognizes that early investments in children and youth are critical for the long-term success of our region. It is clear that the most significant ways to avoid the costly consequences of behavioral health issues are to make upstream services and expand prevention, treatment, brief intervention, and opportunities to catch the problem earlier. So did you know that we have evidence that a young person who reaches age 21 with having never used tobacco, drinking, using drugs, or abusing prescription medications is unlikely to ever become addicted? That's one of the reasons we are asking our friends in the Washington State Legislature to raise the age limit for buying tobacco products to age 21. Focusing on prevention is also at the heart of King County's Health and Human Services Transformation Plan and our Youth Action Plan. Smart public investments and proven strategies will pay back many times over and result in healthier and more prosperous communities. Our conversation tonight cannot be complete without talking about suicide and suicide prevention. That, too, unfortunately, is a subject that I am all too familiar with. Fourteen years ago, my sister Rose lost her husband Pete to suicide, as did my nephew Isaiah. On a very personal level, as an adolescent, I made more than one attempt to end what at the time I considered to be very unbearable pain. My parents kept a gun in the house, but thankfully... They took measures to secure it, so I had no access to that gun on the night that I went into their bedroom looking for it. We must support public policy that keeps firearms out of the hands of children. Had my parents not taken this action, I am not sure that I would be up here tonight.
I was fortunate, and I received care in the, in the public behavioral health system, and I am proud to stand before you today as an example of a wise investment. Each, each year in this country, an estimated 40,000 individuals die by suicide. Half of those deaths of su of, by suicide are by firearms. Like so many things that I have talked about tonight, suicide is preventable. Suicide prevention is a community responsibility, and we must continue to adopt policies that prevent suicide and end these terrible tragedies from occurring in our communities. Last session, the Washington State Legislature made wise decisions related to mental health, substance abuse, and primary care integration by passing Senate Bill 6312. Study after study documents the benefits of delivering behavioral health services in an integrated fashion. Sadly, the reality is that severe mental illness, on a with individuals with severe mental illness, on average only have a 53-year lifespan. That's 25 years earlier than the general population. For this and many other reasons, we testified in support of that bill, and we continue to support systems integration. I have spoken with a lot of individuals in recovery over the years. I've been in this business a long time. Um, and, you know, because I believe that people in our system know best, I always ask them the same version of this question, and that is, what is it that worked for you? What is it that changed your life and got you into recovery? You know, and what I, what I hear from them without fail is, Remarks about building recovery support systems. I hear about safe and clean and sober housing. I hear about finding employment. I hear about vocational and educational opportunities provided. And I hear from them, treatment was ready when I was ready to go. We must have treatment on demand when people are ready to receive it. These are the things that lead, to pe lead people on the path to a healthy, fulfilling, productive life and recovery. Many factors combine together to affect health of individuals and communities. Whether people are healthy or not is largely determined by our circumstances and our environments. Factors such as race, where we live, our surroundings, our income, our education level, our relationship with our family and friends all have considerable impacts on our health. For these reasons and because of substantial local investments in these areas, we believe that King County, in partnership with health providers and health plans, play an important role in the delivery and management of a countywide behavioral health network. It is in partnership that we can achieve the triple aim of improving patient satisfaction, create healthier communities, and reduce cost. Just as we have integrated behavioral health services at the community level, we must integrate our crisis systems. I've sat alongside our designated mental health professionals and listened with headsets on while they've taken crisis calls. I've accompanied them on outreach cases, and I have witnessed firsthand the challenges that they face and the risks that they face every single day. I have tremendous respect for their work, and I can assure you, based on my experience and observation, that as many as half of their cases are alcohol or substance abuse related. It is time to stop involuntarily committing individuals with primary substance abuse in our mental health ITA system because we have no other options. 
I am really close to being done. <laughs> we need to, to provide our DMHP staff the tools they need to respond to the complex needs of individuals with co-occurring disorders. In addition to an integrated system, we need more capacity to serve people in crisis. A Washington, State Institute, a Washington State Institute on Public Policy report found that Washington ranked 47th in, the, in community inpatient psychiatric beds per capita. This lack of beds has contributed significantly to our boarding challenge. We are prepared this session to partner with the state and our provider network to bring more resources online. Capital funding is needed to build two new 16-bed evaluation and treatment facilities in King County that would open late next year, as well as a 16-bed secure detox facility and a residential treatment program to serve clients who have co-occurring disorders. Medicaid doesn't, we need state dollars because Medicaid doesn't pay for bricks and mortars. But all of these facilities would be eligible for Medicaid reimbursement once we got them built. Capital funding is also critical to a plan to convert inpatient hospital beds to involuntary psychiatric beds for detained individuals who have significant medical issues. We recognize that we cannot build our way out of this current crisis. The answer is not simply about adding more inpatient involuntary psychiatric beds. As a matter of fact, like the criminal justice, we should keep people in, we should keep individuals out of inpatient involuntary hospitalization to the degree possible and treat people in the community at every opportunity. When individuals do get hospitals, providers should be incentivized to discharge them as soon as they are stable and back to their natural support systems. Having said that, we recognize that sometimes circumstances require that individuals with behavioral health disorders, for their safety and the safety of the community, may need to be involuntary treat treated. I am living proof that treatment need not be voluntary to be successful. We have another looming crisis, and that is the issue of keeping untreated mentally ill people in jail. Under the U.S. Constitution and state law, Defendants must be competent to stand trial and to understand the charges against them. If found incompetent, people should get immediate treatment to restore competency and not be allowed to languish in jails only to deteriorate further because a bed cannot be secured. I think based on the reaction, we can all agree that this is a deplorable situation and we need to collectively identify solutions and take joint ownership. This is not a state responsibility, as some would say. It is not solely a county responsibility because they're in our jails, as other people would say. This is a joint community responsibility and we need to work together on this situation. Individuals with mental health and substance use disorders should receive treatment and in the vast majority of cases should not be incarcerated for the very health condition that got them there in the first place. One of my major priorities when I started this job was to end psychiatric boarding. And I wish I could stand up here and take credit for that today, but I cannot. I am, however, pleased to say that we know this practice will cease in our state before the end of this year, thanks to a decision by the Washington State Supreme Court. 
You know, I set very ambitious goals and targets because I believe we need to challenge ourselves and we need to challenge the system to create bigger goals. I believe in the use of data to drive decisions, and I believe in the power of creating broad partnership. I'm prepared to work with the community partners and the legislature to take bold actions to improve behavioral health services in King County. I want to assure our members of the legislature that I recognize that the upcoming session will be challenging and that you will need to make tough choices. As you do, I want to remind you that not all behavioral health services are reimbursable by Medicaid and that not all individuals are Medicaid eligible. We leverage state dollars to complete our continuum of care and we are committed to structuring our delivery system to maximize Medicaid reimbursement at every opportunity. We ask that you restore cuts to non-Medicaid mental health and substance abuse funds reduced in the prior biennium. As a state, we have increased access to alcohol through liquor privatization. We have increased access to marijuana through legalization. We ask that a portion of these tax revenues that are collected be directed to pay for prevention and treatment efforts. Last page. As we move to the highlight of this evening and hear stories of how substance abuse and mental health has affected real people in our community, I join with many others in this room as living proof that investments in behavioral health pay off. People live healthier lives, do meaningful work, and contribute to their families and communities. We are stronger, we are safer, we are more connected as a community when we invest federal, state, and local resources in prevention, treatment, and recovery services. Thank you all very much for being here tonight. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. He's a good man. He's going to be a great leader for King County. Division Director Jim Volendroff. Ladies and gentlemen, our next speaker recently shared her family's story of addiction, the story of her daughter, Mara, on Recovery Coast to Coast. It was one of the most inspirational and moving guests that we've had. She was the first host of Evening Magazine, a television news anchor in the Seattle for many, many years. She now is an advocate, an outspoken advocate for prevention, treatment, and recovery. Would you please welcome Penny Legate. Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Neil, for thinking that this was a place that I needed to be tonight, and I really am glad to be here. So it started with Neil, and uh, thanks to Chris Verskyle, too, for making it possible for me to share a little bit of my story with you tonight. Um, you might be looking at me and saying, I bet she has some answers, but I don't. So we'll just start there. Um, it's interesting that for a person that makes a living speaking in front of audiences and, and cameras, I'm, I'm a bit nervous tonight, and the reason I'm feeling nervous is because I want the message to be right. I want the message to be from my daughter, Mara. 
In fact, I'm even wearing one of her jackets. She was quite a rebel, as you'll see in her pictures. channeling Mara tonight. I am here, though, to tell you that drug abuse and addiction can happen in any family. And our legislators probably already know this, but it's the kind of thing that crosses all socioeconomic classes, all sorts of families, uh, families with two parents, loving parents, supportive parents, wealthy parents, um, people who are single parents. It knows no particular type of family or person. I had no exposure to drug abuse and addiction growing up. I don't say that as any sort of like, oh, I'm so special or great. It just was the way I was raised. If there were substance problems, they were hidden. But I grew up in a little cow town in western Nebraska. And the worst thing we saw in high school was some of the hoods, as we called them, using pot. So there's no way, nothing in my DNA that told me that one day I'd be dealing with somebody who used heroin. So ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to show you the face of a heroin addict. I thought heroin addicts growing up were middle-aged men shaking and trembling in an alleyway, thin beyond belief, shaking because they needed their next fix. But this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a beautiful, young, incredibly intelligent, vivacious, smart, funny human being. This is Mara. She's 18 years old there. Mira was a happy little child. Um, she was our second daughter. We had two kids, two daughters. But she always was pensive. She was a type of child that was a little hard to figure out. She was complex. Her older sister and she loved to hang out together. We did a lot of family things, like going to the pumpkin patch. She was a beautiful ballet dancer. I want you to kind of know her tonight a little bit. She was best known as a pitcher in softball. When she was 12, she could throw an underhand pitch at 60 miles an hour. She was known as the Rocket. That was her nickname in the league. And she's the ba in the back row there on the far left, of course, with the sunglasses, being cool. She led her teams to many championships with her pitching abilities. She quit for a few years during some of her most troubled years, but her last year when she was clean and sober of high school, she was convinced to play for Garfield. She went to this uh, school that was a special alternative school so she could play sports with any high school, and she chose Garfield and had a winning season for them that year. Mara also was a very curious person about the world. She shared that with me, and we traveled together to many incredible places. She was about 14 here when I took her to Vietnam. Now, Mara's the kind of kid who didn't like children much. She didn't want to hang on to babies, and she didn't want to be around them, unlike my other daughter. I turned around, and she had picked up this little special needs baby in an orphanage. This is the picture I took. 
This is the two of us during Mara's red slash pink hair phase in Nicaragua. We traveled together to learn how peasant farmers are being allowed to own land through an organization called Agros, and she helped carry my gear with me as I shot videotape. Merritt, age 18, graduated on time from an alternative high school called Middle College. Maybe some of you have heard of it. It was a lifesaver for her. It was a small environment. She was able to get really individualized attention. She was clean and sober and graduated on time, which was a miracle. She was really proud of herself that day. And then she went on to get a job at Tully's, where she worked as a barista, trying to figure out where she wanted to go to school and what she wanted to do. We traveled to Africa about two months before she died. And on this trip, Mara was the kind of kid who falls in love with the down and outers. She could relate so much to these birds, which are called um, marabou storks. And they're about the ugliest looking things you could ever see. Um, but she thought they were amazing. That was Mara. She also was a huge hit with all the people in the village. Mara died about three months after that trip, on June 12, 2012, in my home. I didn't know she had relapsed, because heroin addicts don't cower in the corners in the alleyways and shake. Mental illness certainly contributed to Mara's struggles. She was a child who struggled with depression, anxiety, ADHD, and eating disorders. Really tough to treat just one of those, let alone all those things combined. When Mara was a sophomore in high school, she was spiraling downward so quickly that we had an intervention and she fought us so vigorously because she was so um, out of her mind on, on drugs that we had to call the police. That was our only option, according to the interventionist, was to call the police. And we're going, why do we have to call the police? And he said, because if she won't agree to go to treatment, you can send her to jail. Now, the reason we called the police to come to the intervention is because we did not want her out after this intervention. We knew she'd go on, on the lam. We couldn't commit her to treatment because the age of consent in this state is 13. Really? That means a 13-year-old child can walk away from treatment without their parents' consent. That's my personal opinion. We need to change that. We need to change that. So our only option after looking at what was available here in the state of Washington and in Seattle was to send her out of state. That's all we could do. If we put her into treatment here in the Seattle area at age 13, she would have run. Luckily, when the police gave her a choice between jail and treatment, she chose to go. So what is needed here besides this age of consent thing that I broke up? Well, heroin deaths, unfortunately, in King County are on the rise. According to Caleb Banta Green, a researcher at the University of Washington, 
The 2013 annual King County Drug Report shows that drug-related deaths, first of all, were up overall. But from 2009 to 2013, heroin deaths doubled in King County. Doubled. And the startling information there is that the biggest increase was in the kids ages 18 to 29. This used to be a middle-aged person's disease, but it's not any longer. In wrapping up, I'd like to call for some sort of collaborative effort among parents, parents who are struggling with kids who are, who are addicted, parents who've lost kids to addiction. There are several of them in the audience tonight. We have such passion and love and concern and sorrow that could all be corralled into a great force for good. And as we all know, when we help others, we heal ourselves. We have lost so many beautiful and valuable children like Mira Williams. Let's please not lose anymore. As Mira said, we are not throwaway people. Thank you. Penny Legate. Thank you so much, Penny. Thank you very, very much for sharing your story. Brad Feingood, Assistant Division Director of Alcohol and Drug Coordinator, King County Mental Health and Chemical Abuse Dependency Services. Why don't you come on up along with Gene Robertson, Assistant Division Director and Regional Support Network Administrator, King County Mental Health Chemical Abuse and Dependency Services. They will introduce several other individuals who will share their personal perspectives. Brad? So, um, just one more, please, everybody, a round of applause for Penny Legate. Thank you so much. And a huge round of applause for yourselves this evening, and especially for those whose family members um, have suffered from addiction and who's here uh, on behalf of your friends and family. Thank you for being here. My name is Brad Feingood. I am the Assistant Division Director in the Mental Health and Substance Abuse Division. I have great pride in being here today. Our, our, our next speaker um, is a young lady who, when I first met, um, she just blew me away. She's an amazing person, and I know her story will blow you away also. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Robin Covington. Well, in 2006, a caseworker from Child Welfare Services came into my home and determined I was a low-bottom alcoholic and needed immediate treatment. He placed my son in foster care and told me when I sobered up, I would get him back. I never got him back. Instead, I continued drinking and I went homeless. He never came home because he did not have a home to come to. My parental rights were terminated. A judge in a courtroom 
deemed me an unfit parent. Well, what I was was a failure. I was a failure as a person. I was a failure as a human being. I was a failure as a woman. And this is a great humiliation. My son and I lived in a nice apartment in a nice neighborhood. I had always single parented, so we were extremely close. Living apart was devastating to both of us, yet I continued to drink. You see, I drank my life away. On the streets, simple basic necessities are hard to come by. I rarely showered. I always had to find a place to use the bathroom. Every day I had to find a place to sit. And every night I had to find a shelter where I would sleep on a mat on the floor. And you know, that's a misnomer. I never slept. I couldn't sleep. It was too scary. I was too vulnerable to actually sleep. It was a ceaseless nightmare, and I felt worthless. I didn't know how to dig my way out of that pit. And I lived in despair, fearing I would die a bag lady. Well, in 2011, I fell off a bar stool and I broke my pelvis. And Harborview Medical Center came and got me, or actually the paramedics came and got me, and I spent 10 days in intensive care at Harborview. And there I was given a team. I was given doctors and nurses and clinicians and psychiatrists and psychoanalysts and a um, case manager, therapists, mental health therapists. I mean, I had a team. And this team of important people working for me made me think maybe I was important too. But I didn't feel important. Now, once I was able to walk again, the main task was finding me a place to live, and I had to have permanent housing that was not based on clinical success. My team and I knew that with the caveat of sobriety, I would be kicked out of transitional housing and relegated back to the streets. Now, in Seattle, the 1811 Eastlake Project houses chronically homeless alcoholics. Now, in order to further qualify, I had to have a long history of costing an extraordinary amount of money in public monies in my utilization of emergency hospital stays, emergency transportation, detox, jail, court, and legal fees. Believe me when I tell you, I qualified. And this is not something, I mean, this is another great embarrassment to me. At 1811, I have another important team the project managers know my name and they treat me with respect. The staff are always encouraging. There's a nurse who works five days a week and I even have access to the computer. I also have a, now I can't ever remember his title. It's very important. He is my, um, well, I can't remember, but I can remember NCIS. I call him my NCIS guy because I can remember Mark Harmon. <laughs> you know what I mean? 
I can remember Mark Harmon. And I wish that he looked like Mark Harmon. But he does not. Oh, wow. At 1811, I also had my own kitchen. I had my own bathroom. I had my own bed. I also have a house key to my own front door. I don't know what would have happened to me had I gone homeless again, but I'm pretty sure I would not be standing up here tonight talking with you all. Now, through DESC's outpatient and mental health programs, I have a plethora of services, including Jim Hoffenbach, my trustworthy psychiatrist who has worked with me for years to help manage my bipolar disorder. Today, I am sober. And I have no worries about eating or showering or where I will sleep at night. I also have no worries about seeing my son because he is able to visit me because I have a home. Yeah. And, and he happens to be here tonight. How about that? Well, I'm 60 years old. Yeah, that's what I think. 60 years old. And my life is nothing like what I expected it to be when I was a little girl. But thanks to 1811 and those of you who support housing and services for the broken, I have a life and I have a home. And it's a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Robin. You're amazing. And thank you to her son for being here today. Um, if you're a young person in recovery and you identify in recovery, will you stand up, please? I want to give you a round of applause. Thank you. Uh, I, like uh, Penny, lost a... Uh, um, family member to addiction almost 10 years ago. Today on New Year's, it'll be on New Year's 10 years ago, we got the phone call that my younger brother had passed away uh, at 26 years old. So I know what it's like to be a family member and I also see what it, the struggles that young people deal with. Our next speaker is also a young person in recovery and I'm so grateful to be able to introduce him um, because his story is that of a young person in recovery who has also gone through programs with our community partners 
and shows that collaboration with the courts and law enforcement, while worth it, to engage people in recovery and live a productive life. Ladies and gentlemen, I introduce to you Zach Summer. Thanks, Brad. Um, before, Brad said he had 15 to 20 seconds to fill, and he asked if maybe I could do a backflip off the stage, and I said maybe no backflips tonight. <laughs> so I like standing up and uh, representing all the young people in recovery, so that was awesome. Um, before I get started, a good friend told me, he said, uh, you know, when it comes to public speaking, get in and get out. <laughs> so I'll do my best. So. Um, like Brad said, my name's Zach, and um, I'm a recovering alcoholic and drug addict. Uh, my sobriety date is May 15, 2013, um, which is almost 18 months. Um, I'd like to start out by saying I'm not a person that likes to be told what to do. As a result of my uh, poor decisions and bad behaviors in my past, um, I was hit with the harsh realization at a point in my life that if I didn't eventually stand up for myself, I would fall for anything. Growing up, I came from a home filled with love and support. I strongly believe that I was always given the opportunity to do what I wanted and a chance to succeed. Being an only child, I considered myself a spoiled boy with a loving mother and father. And on the outside looking in, we looked like the perfect family. At the age of 12, my parents divorced and my dad moved away. At 15, I was active in motor, motocross racing. That's not too bad a picture. Um, it was something that was introduced to me early in my life and uh, something that I loved and always saw it being a part of my life. And uh, after a day of racing my dirt bike in Richland, Washington, I have a memory of being offered a beer by my friend. I hesitated and said, yeah, why not? And uh, taking that first drink, I didn't realize I was going to be heading down a path I was convinced could never happen to someone like me. Between the age of 15 and 18, I kept racing motocross, continued to drink, and eventually got introduced to all kinds of drugs. Then I found Oxycontin. I consider myself someone living life like a rock star. I took a pretty good fall at a dirt bike track and ended up having a pretty bad leg break. I went into surgery the following morning to repair the damage. I ended up with metal plates and pins on my leg and a prescription for an endless amount of Percocet for pain management. This is the best part. If I told the doctor I was in pain, he would refill my meds. Over the next year, I would abuse my medication on a daily basis in every bad way you could possibly imagine. I can specifically remember a text message one night sent from me, a friend saying that he was able to pick up, wasn't able to pick up any Oxycontin, but was able to get a bag of heroin. His exact words were, it's like Oxycontin, but only better. I promised myself I would never use heroin. I crossed that line and never looked back. Within a short period of time, of getting high on heroin was my priority. Lying, cheating, and stealing became part of my life. Life became more about doing whatever it took to ease the withdrawal symptoms of heroin. I became unemployable, unreliable, and a dishonest person. I reached a decision that a move to Chehalis, Washington would solve my problems. 
We found the answer. Within nine months, I was back into daily and heroin use and back to my old habits of stealing from my family. I lost my job, I quit paying bills, and addiction became my life. I became more desperate than ever for a bag or a bottle. So desperate that I decided to steal things for money to support my habit from a very close friend. I packed a duffel bag of clothes, moved home with my mom who was in recovery and here tonight, and decided that I wanted to get clean and sober. And on March 13, 2013, I got clean and sober. I attended a five-day detox program and would attend 12-step recovery classes to help the next 60 days. I experienced being around a people that genuinely cared about me during this time. My past crimes caught up to me in the form of two felony warrants. Soon after, I, be I attempted to begin to deal with the wreckage of my past. I made plans to head back to Lewis County to deal with my legal matters and, board a and boarded a train to Chehalis. While on that train, my addiction took over. My new plan was to skip my court date and to get high. As soon as I got into Chehalis, Washington, I called my drug dealer. Six hours later, I was minus $600 and locked in a hotel room all alone with a bottle and a bag of heroin, wondering how it had happened once again. I felt a level of guilt and shame that still to this day I do not forget. I knew that I needed help. The following morning I would check myself into an inpatient program. I had realized that I'd, I could overcome this, that I have a reason to live. I truly believe that the experience I had there was built, that built my foundation to start the start of a truth filling with unforgettable moments. I graduated the inpatient program continued to get treatment, got a job with another sober person, reconnected with my mother and made an endless list of friends that are here in this audience tonight supporting me every step of my life. I would eventually address my felony charges and was offered a transfer of my cases from Lewis County to King County Drug Diversion Court. Drug court is designed for people that struggle with drug and alcohol addiction. When I graduate, my felony charges will be off my record and give me the equal opportunity to make it in the real world. And today I'm currently a full-time landscaper. Um, my social life is focused on being with people in recovery. I'm experiencing feelings I had blocked while using. Now the good thing about getting sober is you get your feelings back. But the bad thing about getting sober is you get your feelings back. <laughs> I've experienced many ups and downs the last 18 months, but still to this moment I have not found a situation that a drink or a drug would solve. One of the biggest moments of my recovery, besides being here tonight, is the support from my case manager, Yuka, and the amount of inspiration she gives me to stand before you tonight and share my story. I'd like to give her a round of applause. She's a really mean case manager. And I'm on track to graduate the drug court program in March 2015. And today I don't live in fear of my addiction controlling my life. I live a life worth living. Thank you.
Thank you, Zach. Thank you very much for sharing your story with us. There are 12 fundamental components of recovery, and hope is one of the key components. It is often said that people in recovery sometimes need someone to hold their hope for them and so they can hold it themselves. That theme is well represented by the stories we're hearing tonight. And so the next person I'd like to introduce to tell his story is Ricky Garcia. Ricky? <laughs> oh my. Never spoken to this many people before, so I'm a, I'm a bit nervous. Uh, so yes, my name is uh, Ricky Garcia. I wanted to thank Chris personally uh, for making this happen. Also, my friends and family, thank you for being here today. Uh, it truly means the world to me. Um, every day I see myself in so many individuals. The guy in the back of the bus drinking straight from the bottle. A young woman staggering down Third Avenue asking for money for a bus fare. The man pacing back and forth pulling out his hair. Every day I see me. In late 2010, I began to suffer from anxiety and depression. I didn't know what was happening to me. I felt alone, desperate, and afraid. It was reminiscent of the struggle I faced years earlier before I came out of the gay man, except this time it was even worse. I remember one day, my head was hung low, and tears rolled down my cheeks. My dad walked by and said, Levanta tu cabeza, hijo, y mira alrededor de ti. La vida es bonita. Lift your head up, son, and look at the world around you. Life was beautiful. But in that moment, I couldn't see it, any of it. At night, I would drown my pillow in tears and be awoken at 3 a.m. to panic attacks, shaking uncontrollably. I began, to, I began to drink heavily in a futile attempt to cope with these embarrassed feelings. When alcohol wasn't enough anymore, I started to use heroin. I wanted nothing more than for this pain to end but I lost hope that it ever would. I began to consider suicide. From 2011 to 2012, I attempted suicide several times and suffered multiple overdoses. Three times the paramedics found me barely breathing and I woke up in the ICU on a rented ventilator. During that period, I was in the ER over 75 times in six psychiatric units and three drug and alcohol treatment centers. In one instance, I was kept in an emergency room for three days with no access to mental health care because no psychiatric beds were available. Even though I had been acutely suicidal, I was ultimately sent home having received no psychiatric care. Soon thereafter, I was back in the ER again. I nearly died because I didn't get the help I needed. But when I finally got access to coordinated care, it was that quality care that saved my life. The experience I had while in psychiatric inpatient was life-changing. I felt safe. I felt stable. I felt at home. My nurses and psychiatrists partnered with me to stabilize me on my medication, and through counseling, DBT, and CBT groups, I gained tangible skills to cope with my symptoms. And in chemical dependency treatment, I learned the practical tools which became the building block for my recovery. I've now clean and sober and mentally well for over two years.
I'm working to save money and return to the University of Washington to complete my degree in aerospace engineering. And I've started. And I've started an independent photography business. In my darkest days, I never thought I would ever have the opportunity to care for my nephews again. But today, my family trusts me again. So I have the privilege of picking up the boys from school and listening to them tell me how their days were and what they've learned. I cherish the moments we spend laughing at cartoons together and our strolls around Green Lake, where we spend what feels like hours feeding the ducks. I believe everything happens for a reason and that I'm here for a reason. All the people I hope to help are that reason. The lives that I hope to save through advocacy and prevention are that reason. This today is that reason. Even though I'm in long-term recovery, I don't have to look far to remember where I came from. This morning I saw myself again in the face of a man sitting outside my work with his head hung low, his body trembling. I see his pain. That hurt is all too familiar to me. But I also see something he doesn't see. I see hope for him. I know there is hope because I've seen it, touched it, lived it. Two years ago, people looked at me and saw a depressed alcoholic, a drug addict, a broken human being. But what they failed to see was me, the person you see today. I'm alive today by the grace of God and the unshakable faith of a friend who refused to give up on me. My question for you tonight is, what do you see when you look at those among us who are lost? Do you see them only as they are, or do you see them for what they could be? Will you carry that hope in your hearts for them? Today I stand before you mentally stable and substance-free. My story is a testament to the fact that treatment works and recovery happens. It turns out my dad was right all along. Today I smile him to, uh, up to him in heaven. You're right, Dad. Thank you so much, Ricky, for sharing your story of courage and resiliency. And we're going to move it right along. Our final presenter tonight to share her recovery story is Sherea Lane. Please welcome Sherea. just in shock that she got my name right. That's like starting off on the right foot. Thank you for that. That was great. Um, and thank you to everybody who spoke already tonight and who's here tonight to be in the solution and to represent that hope for people um, because we need it. We really, really need it. Um, so I've been told that the best way to tell a story or tell my story 
is to talk about what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now. So, start from the beginning. Um, I remember sitting in an alley off of Lake City Way, praying as hard as I could to, I don't know who, somebody out there. Um, I was asking God to take me out. I thoroughly believed that I had seen enough of this life, and I was ready to throw in the towel. Um, I was done. I had given up on every dream I'd ever had and lost hope, lost all hope for the future. I couldn't think getting past my next drink or drug, and it felt so horrible to admit that I'd become everything I said I'd never be, homeless and addicted. Um, I grew up on the reservation and spent my entire youth in tribal foster care. My mom is an alcoholic and lost my sister and I to Child Protective Services several times and eventually lost her parental rights. She was told that if she ever wanted to see us again, that we would need to live with family and that our case be transferred into tribal foster care. Um, so we moved north. And uh, almost everyone in my family was or is addicted to drugs and alcohol. Um, my uncle that I went to live with when I was a child, um, after moving around to different foster homes, uh, died of a heroin overdose when I was 12. And so I've been exposed to addiction pretty early on in my life. Um, I had never actually seen anyone recover from addiction, so I didn't believe that it was possible. And I say what a lot of people say, who comes from broken homes, poverty, and hardship, that I would be different, and that I would create a different life for myself and my children and leave a different legacy. But that is definitely easier said than done. Life's challenges got heavier and heavier, and I turned to things that temporarily helped me deal with life and helped me to cope with my situation, my circumstances. And before I knew it, I was drinking every day and using, and the drugs got progressively worse, as did my circumstances along with it. Eventually, at 21, I ended up in my fourth treatment center after going to youth treatments, you know, before I turned 18. And um, I met a friend there who told me about this place called the Recovery Cafe. And she was like, yeah, they have meetings, and they have coffee, and free food, and yoga, and all these classes and it's all free and it's beautiful and it was just like this too good to be true place. Um, so we made a, two agreements. We were going to meet at the recovery cafe when we got out of treatment because she was getting out the day after me. And we were going to come back to Seattle and try out for the Seagull, the Seahawks cheerleaders. Um, you know, in treatment we were, you know, a little skinny things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that was the plan. Um, so we were supposed to meet there, and I showed up, and she never made it. So I've never seen her again. Um, and the tra transitional housing that I moved into after treatment was not drug and alcohol free. It was the only option available to me on, on such short notice. Um, and the cafe was the only clean and sober environment that I had to go to. And it was the only place I felt safe. Um, everyone I knew used every place that I had to go, there was drugs and alcohol there. So finding this space in the cafe was unlike anything I'd ever seen before, really. 
Um, through 12-step meetings, I developed bonds with a core group of friends who were also in recovery, and some of whom are here supporting me tonight. Um, and through those friendships, I began to believe that recovery might be possible for me too. And even though the last thing I wanted to do was live in a house full of women, I interviewed for a space in sober living because my life was on the line. And the women voted me into the house. And before I knew it, the final piece of my foundation for recovery was put into place. Um, one night, shortly after moving in, um, my purse was stolen with my house key in it, my iPod, and a bunch of other stuff. And I was like hysterical, like going crazy, you know, not sure if I, I was like, really, I get clean and this is what happens to me kind of attitude. And, and, um, and I wasn't sure if I was going to stay. I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this thing. And one of the women at the house made a key for me, like right after hearing that I had lost my purse. And uh, she handed it to me and she said, this is your home. You need a key for your home, right? And uh, those words touched something really deep inside of me. And this began my journey of healing is really what my recovery has been. Um, today, I'm living one day at a time with four and a half years clean and sober. Um, I'm a full-time student majoring in, in business at the University of Washington. Thanks, because it's rough. I yeah, appreciate that. Um, this year, I was hired to facilitate events and to uh, head advocacy efforts for all Native American students on campus. Um, yeah. And uh, this summer, I was able to travel to Ghana in Africa with a study abroad program. Um, that's where that picture's from. That was actually, he like said, send a picture of like one of the happiest or proudest moments that you could find. And um, I took that picture after teaching a class to a bunch of kids um, about goal setting. And like, it was just incredible. It was really, really, really powerful. And I also spent my four year sobriety birthday there. And I remember waking up on that morning, so I jet lag, so I was up really, really early in the morning just trying to make sense of all of this because it makes no sense to me at all. Um, and the best answer that I could come up with for my own question was that I cannot and have not done this alone. Um, and I just, I could never have imagined that I would be living the life that I'm living today um, such a short time ago. Um, life today still has its challenges. Um, my sobriety did not get everyone else in my family sober. I've thought for a long time that no one in my family cared to notice any of the work that I've done um, in changing my life until recently. Um, it was actually just a couple of weeks ago. Um, I was going to a meeting after a really long, really stressful day. And I was having a really hard time because um, somebody in my life was making me feel really bad, and I was questioning my recovery and feeling really unsure about the person that I'm becoming. Um, and out of nowhere, 
around in front of this church, um, my mom walks up. And uh, she had been drinking. Um, she's still on the streets. And uh, was on her way to go sleep in the church stairs, the same church that the meeting was in downstairs. And I was so happy to see her, and I began telling her how I was feeling, and we talked for a while, and I felt better. And we were going to go our separate ways. Um, I was going to go into the meeting, and she was going to go do her thing. And before leaving, she gave me a big hug and told me to go into that meeting and represent for all of us. And uh, so I'd never heard that before, but that was really powerful. Um, so I am still the only one in my family today who's clean and sober. And my purpose is not to get anyone else sober, but just to be an example of what's possible. Um, I've accomplished a lot of things in the last few years, but the most important of those accomplishments is that today I know peace, that I can look in the mirror and be happy with the person I see, that I get to be of service and useful in the lives of other people, and that I have hope that recovery is possible and that I get to share that with people on a daily basis. So thank you. Thank you, Sharia. Thank you, Ricky. Thank you, Zach. Thank you, Robin. My friends in the legislature, you have seen and you have heard the bright side of addiction, the bright side of mental health, which is recovery. Right now, I'd like to invite very quickly our legislative friends to please come to the stage and take a seat. If you would come up here very quickly and we'll have everybody introduce themselves and then we'll ask a couple of questions and then we'll go ahead and close it out for tonight. So come on up here, take a seat as quickly as you possibly can. All state, federal legislators and their legislative staff, please come to the stage. Be seated. We'll probably have to share some microphones, but I think we can do that. Again, all legislators, state and federal, and their staffs, come on up. We get everybody up here. What a great-looking group. All right, I want to start real quick, uh, and we'll start over, over here with Curtis. Just say your name and uh, wh where you're from and, and what you represent, what, what district, and then we'll ask some questions. If we can quickly do that. Grab the microphone and... Hi, everyone. My name is Curtis Knapp, and I work for State Representative Brady Walkinshaw, who represents this area right here in the 43rd Legislative District. Great. Thanks, Curtis. Tommy Bauer, U.S. Senator Maria Cantwell's office. We represent the whole state. Richard Lazaro, Senator Patty Murray's office. I'm Ross Hunter, and I'm with Representative Ross Hunter's office, and we represent <laughs> the, sorry, we represent the 48th district, which is Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland, and the Points communities, Medina, the Gold Coast, that place. I'm Jamie Peterson, the state senator from right here in the 43rd district. Welcome to the 43rd district. I'm Mark Mullet, the state senator from Issaquah. Mark Malosha, Senate-elect from the 30th district, Federal Way. Representative Linda Kochmar, uh, Federal Way, that's Algona, Pacific, Milton, and parts of Kent, parts of Auburn, and it's the 30th District. Ruth Kagey, State Representative from the 32nd District, which is Northwest Seattle and Shoreline, Linwood, part of Edmonds, part of Montlake Terrace. I'm Joe Fitzgibbon. I'm a State Representative from the 34th District, West Seattle, Burien, White Center, and Vashon Island.
I'm Eric Pettigrew, uh, representative for the 37th Legislative District, which starts in downtown uh, Seattle and Pioneer Square and goes all the way to downtown Renton. Nice. I'm Tina Orwell, and I represent the 33rd Legislative District in South King County. Hi, my name is Daniel Strauss. I work for State Senator David Frock from the 46th District, Lake City, Lake Forest Park, and Kenmore. I'm Jean Cole-Wells, State Senator for the 36th District, Queen Anne, Magnolia, Ballard, Belltown, Greenwood, Finney Ridge. I'm Derek Zabel here on behalf of uh, Representative Roger Goodman from the 45th, uh, Kirkland, Sammamish, Duval. Kate Hoffman and I represent State Representative Ruben Carlisle of the 36th. I'm Sid Locke and I'm here for uh, Representative Steve Berquist and Representative Mia Gregerson. Hi, my name is Noah Ullman. I'm here on behalf of uh, State Senator Joe Fain's office representing South King County. Hi, my name is Jacob Eisenberg. I'm here on behalf of Congressman Jim McDermott representing Washington's 7th Congressional District, uh, most of Seattle, Edmonds, and Shoreline, and Burien. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Lynn Tai. I represent Congressman Adam Smith's office of the 9th Congressional District, the minority-majority district of the state. Hi, my name is Yasmin Christopher, and I'm here representing um, new Sen incoming Senator-elect Pramila Jayapal um, in the 37th Legislative District. Hi, I'm Angie Weiss. I'm here on behalf of Representative Jerry Paulette from the 46th District. Hello, and I'm Robert Knoll, and I represent uh, Congresswoman Susan Delbene. That's the 1st District of Washington. We're uh, Northeast King County. Big hand for all of these folks tonight, ladies and gentlemen. We obviously have some new friends and we have some old friends. And what I'd like to do is to start by asking the state legislators what you think of what you heard tonight from these presentations and where mental health and substance abuse falls into your priorities in the upcoming session. And whoever would like to start first, grab a microphone and uh, let's let's hear from you. Well, I'm a state representative, Linda Kochmar, and uh, I did speak with the CFO, that's the chief financial officer for St. Francis Hospital uh, in Federal Way, one of the largest Franciscan hospitals in our area, and uh, talking a little bit about um, the emergency room treatment for mentally ill and uh, drug abuse. And um, I've been in the ER when it's been just a terrible scene. And he said what we really need is more outpatient treatment options for those that are being released from the ER, not being sent into institutions, or, uh, but more um, of a recovery treatment uh, with, with services so that they can be sure that they're taking their meds, that they're getting the help that they need, so perhaps that they can go back into the homes uh, that are safe and secure for them. But, um, so I'd like to look into that. Thank you. They're all looking at me because I get to do the budget. Um, and what you saw in this year's budget was a reaction to a disastrous lack of services, and we stepped up and tried to fund some more services. Um, now, unfortunately, we didn't get the capital budget done. The House was happy to do it. We couldn't get it through the Senate Republicans. Uh, we're going to have to do that this year. We have to respond to the court order. But we have to do more than respond to a court order. In our budget, which is a document about our priorities, we have to make sure that we're funding all of the services that we need to live in a civilized society and making sure that there are services so that these young people can succeed in life is critically important to what we do. 
So that's what I'll be working Nicely on. stated. Thank you so much. Uh, one of the things that I hear, that I have, I have heard politicians say in the past is, uh, about our education funding crisis, which uh, you may have heard we have an education funding challenge ahead of us. We're going to put a lot of new money into education, and that's a really great thing. Uh, sometimes I hear politicians say, fund education first. And as long as that means fund mental health and substance abuse treatment last, I think, no, we can't do that. We can't put one category of the work that we have to do as a state uh, in a special category above the important work that mental health treatment provides. And I think you heard stories here today about why that's so important. Kids are not going to be able to learn if they're not getting mental health treatment. Kids are not going to be able to learn if they or their parents or somebody in their life uh, has a substance abuse problem. And, uh, and so I would say that uh, mental health ranks right, should rank there right up with education for most of us. Outstanding. Well, as chair of the Early Learning and Human Services Committee, um, our committee has responsibility for chemical dependency treatment. And uh, I fought very hard last session to get the reimbursement rates increased for chemical dependency treatment. Because with the shift to the Affordable Care Act, uh, the re reimbursement rates dropped about 15%, and we're losing a lot of the critical treatment infrastructure uh, that clearly has helped so many individuals recover and regain their lives. I also, um, last year, introduced a bill to require safe gun storage. And that is something listening to listening to uh, the, the tragedy of suicide, uh, about over 640 youth ages 10 to 24 committed suicide with a firearm in the four years between 2009 and 2013. Those are totally preventable deaths. And we need to have common sense laws to require people to safely store their guns. Nicely stated. Um, just kind of reflecting on some of the things that I heard today, I know um, for the office that I work for, human dignity is something that is key. Um, so I, I just want to say that um, on behalf of Senator-elect Jayapal's um, mission once she's in office is to maintain that space so that people can make dreams for themselves. And so I just want to say, uh, that there's a lot to learn, and I think that we're looking to see what we can do in terms of a pretty difficult upcoming uh, political climate to ensure that we do, while we want to fund pre-K and uh, pre-K all the way through uh, college education, that we maintain funding for these critical programs to ensure that human, human dignity in King County is maintained. Thank you so much. I also want to take a minute uh, to thank everyone who shared their stories of recovery tonight. Yeah, it takes incredible courage to do that, and I was very touched by your stories. And I have to say, there's one special young man I want to thank because I've had the opportunity to work on suicide prevention efforts with a very large group of talented people, including Lauren Davis, who's here tonight. And what moves legislation and what really touches our heart is when we hear the stories. And Ricky, you came to Olympia and you shared your story. I'm very proud to say I've watched the first state in the country 
that requires suicide prevention training of mental health professionals and medical staff. Nice. We, we do have a challenging session ahead of us. Um, I think it's so important that we not only protect our safety net, but we rebuild it and make new investments in mental health. Uh, we know that uh, we have to provide people with opportunities for recovery. Uh, my background's in mental health and supportive housing. People need employment opportunities. People need resources to really recover and rebuild their lives. And so it is a tough session, but I think we need to make sure we're really hearing voices. And I want to personally invite you all to Olympia this session to make your voice heard. And I can tell you, Ricky made a difference, and you can make a difference, too. So thank you. In 2006, I and some of my colleagues here on the stage passed the bill to reduce homelessness by 50% in our state. We set up a model where everybody works together, the stakeholders actually try to reduce homelessness. Can we use the same sort of model for suicide, for mental, Ill mental illness incidents, and for uh, substance abuse? Can we actually come up with a plan across our state to reduce the incidences, then come up with the funding? That's what we need. That's what I will work for. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of work to be done. These are the people that are going to be doing the work. Could we have a big round of applause for our legislators and their staffs? I want to thank the, the other elected officials and honored guests who are here tonight, the sponsoring organizations. Thanks to the neighborhood partners, Virginia Mason Medical Center, Diamond Parking, Town Hall Seattle, behavioral health providers, people recovering from mental illness and substance abuse. Thank you to you. You make a difference, ladies and gentlemen. There comes a time, there is a time, and that time is now. Don't let it end here tonight. Keep your voice loud, keep your voice proud. Keep in touch with these legislators and other legislators. Together, ladies and gentlemen, we can make a difference. The bright side of addiction, the bright side of mental illness is recovery. Thank you so much for being here tonight, and we'll see you next year for the next King County Legislative Forum. Thank you so very much.